Well, a long time ago, about nine o'clock last night, uh, <laughs> when I was first giving thought to this sermon, and I was thinking, what should I preach about? I remembered a conversation that I'd had with some of our high school students. I volunteer sometimes in student ministry, and, um, and we were having a conversation afterward, discussion about that night's teaching, and a question came up in our conversation, which was, why do we confess our sins as Christians? Why do we confess our sins? And I think it's a pretty legitimate question. I mean, you have to admit, this is something that's not really a normal thing for people to engage in on a regular basis, to say what it is that you've done wrong and that you've failed to do. And Anglicans, you know, we do it all the time. I mean, every time we come to church, we confess our sins. If you read morning and evening prayer, you're doing it multiple times a day, confessing your sin. We have this tradition where people can come and see a priest and make a private confession of sin. It's a pretty big deal. We've got this season coming up. Ash Wednesday is this week. We're starting the season of Lent. We've set aside a whole season so you can think about your sin and confess your sin and repent of your sin. Why would we do this? It doesn't seem to a lot of people to be very appealing, even to a lot of Christians. I've had people sometimes ask me, and they say, we really like this church, but y'all seem to be kind of morbid and pessimistic, always talking about sin. Why is that? Well, there's a good reason. And this morning, I'd like to give a three-part answer to that question, why confess your sin? And of course, we could give an answer talking about our duty to God. What's our religious duty to confess our sin and ask for forgiveness? But I'm not going to answer it that way. Instead, I don't want to answer the question, why should we or why ought we or what duty do we have to confess our sins? I want to answer the question, why is it good? Why is it a good thing for you and for me to engage in this practice? And I'm going to suggest three answers the first is, we confess our sins because it makes us happy. I know that's not what you were expecting, but that's answer number one. It makes us happy. It makes us less miserable when we confess our sins. And the second answer is, we confess our sins because it helps us, it helps us to be kind to others. Confessing your sin actually helps you to love your neighbor more effectively and better than you would if you didn't confess your sins. And the third reason is that we confess our sins because it trains us how to love. It trains us how to love. So we confess our sins because it makes us happy, it makes us kind, less of a jerk, and because it trains us how to love. Let's talk about this first one. Because it makes us happy. I know that this seems counterintuitive. You would think that the whole spending time reflecting on and naming your sin out loud, that's it's not the kind of thing that seems to lead to happiness. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing we avoid. We don't want to sit around wallowing in our guilt and what we've done wrong and what we've failed to do, and that's just going to make you kind of depressed. So instead, we would just rather think about anything else. Instead of sitting around dwelling on the things that we have to regret or feel remorse about or feel guilt or shame for, we just 
just think about something else. And, and we live during a very easy time to do that. It's a very easy time to distract yourself. Some people who write about technology say that we live amidst what they call an ecosystem of interruption technologies, which just means like we have a million devices and screens and beeps and speakers and things throughout our day that are designed and that seem to conspire together to ensure that we never have a moment of the day where we have to be quiet with our own conscience. It's great. The minute you start feeling bad or feeling some kind of unease about yourself, you could just hop on and look at like a happy video about the next new evolution of dance and you don't have to think about it anymore. We have all these ways to distract ourselves. But the Bible takes a very different approach. It doesn't suggest if you want to be happy, don't spend time thinking about negative thoughts and losing your self-esteem. The Bible says, no, you actually should think about it. You should, you should pray about it. You should articulate it. Take Psalm 32, for instance. This is the psalm that we were discussing in high school group the other night. It begins, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. And you know this word blessed, um, it's kind of a hard word because it's a very churchy word. You don't ever use it outside of church. I mean, I'm guessing you don't go around saying, you know, blessed are you, my friend, during the week. That would be very, very strange. People would look at you. And part of the reason we don't use it is because we don't really know what it means. We know where we're supposed to say it in the liturgy. It's not entirely clear what that word means. We might think it means the same as the word blessed, you know, that, 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 that there's a circumstance of our life not of our own making or choosing, and it's really wonderful, and we're blessed, or that someone has shown us favor that we didn't deserve. That's not exactly what this word is translating, though. The Hebrew word here doesn't mean so much blessed as it means being in a state of blessedness, being in a state of bliss. It's why the Hebrew scholar Robert Alter translates the first verse of this psalm, not blessed is the man, or woman, but happy the man. That's what it means, happy the man. Here's the key to happiness. Happy the man whose sins are forgiven. And that, that's not at all what we normally do. We normally think, well, happy the man who doesn't sit around thinking about his own sins um, and find something better to think about, like watch that new Netflix movie. No, happy the man whose sins are forgiven. Well, why is that? Why does that lead to happiness? If you go on in that psalm and you read the next two verses, three and four, you'll see just how miserable the psalmist felt when he didn't confess his sins. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. You've probably never used those words, but I bet you can identify with the feeling. That feeling that you have when there's something for which you feel ashamed. Something that you feel guilty for and you just rather not think about it. And you, wanna, you just want to push it away. But it's there and it eats away at you. 
and it makes you miserable over time. You know, one of the greatest privileges, one of the greatest honors I have being an ordained priest is that I get the chance to sit with people in private and to hear them make confession of sin to me. And that may seem like a strange thing to to look forward to and to feel privileged about, but it really is a great honor because a lot of people, when they come to confession, a lot of people I've met with, it's the very first time they've ever done it. And I've been there on numerous occasions where someone confesses something to me that they have never told another person in their life. And for some of them, it's been years. And for some, it's been decades. And there's this thing that they've been hiding that they didn't want to share and they didn't want to say. And they try not to think about. But it eats at you. And so that's why we confess. We confess because we are unburdening ourselves. We confess because confession is the way of opening it up and letting it go and receiving forgiveness because we are assured, as the psalmist says in verse 5, that when he confessed his sins, the Lord forgave him. And so we say it out loud. You know, one of the metaphors that the Bible most frequently uses for sin is it describes it as a weight, as a weight. Remember Pilgrim's Progress where Christian had that heavy weight upon him? It's kind of how the Bible thinks of sin. It's a weight. And so when you name it and confess it and acknowledge it, that is how that weight is relieved. And you feel light and you feel free. You feel joy. We confess our sins because it makes us happy. That's one reason. Another reason is we confess our sins because it makes us kind. It makes us kinder to our fellow man. Helps us to love our neighbor. Again, this might go against received common wisdom. I saw this quote recently and um, that seemed to epitomize how we often think. It was on the internet, so... I didn't at all trust the attribution. Who knows who said this thing first? But the quote said, the first rule of kindness is to be kind to yourself. The first rule of kindness is to be kind to yourself. Doesn't that sound nice? You know, and you think, yeah, that's right. I mean, if you're gonna, if you're gonna be kind to other people, you gotta start with yourself. If you're gonna cut other people's slack, you gotta cut yourself some slack. You know, be nice to yourself. It's the kind of deep, psychological truth that you could discover if you buy like a catchy coffee mug and then you can carry it around with you all day. It sounds very nice, but in fact, it's actually not true. Um, It reminded me of an article I read a number of years ago in the Atlantic Monthly by this staff writer. and I knew the writer wasn't a very religious person, so the title of the article immediately caught my attention. It was, America's Empty Church Problem. And I thought, huh, I wonder why this irreligious person thinks that America has an empty church problem. And he said, interestingly, he said, you know, I kind of thought if people would just stop going to church and being so religious all the time, then we would be nicer to each other because we wouldn't have so many disagreements. We wouldn't get caught up in all these culture wars. We would be, we would be more civil. And somehow that has not worked out very well. And we've stopped going to church, and even when we do go to church, we've stopped often confessing our sins, and somehow we're being kinder to ourselves, but it's not working with the kindness to other people. We seem to just be getting meaner. 
not less disagreements, just less civil disagreements in the way that we treat one another. Of course, this writer wasn't the first person that noticed this. Years before, C.S. Lewis, our patron saint of Christ Church Plano, C.S. Lewis himself, <laughs> C.S. Lewis wrote this essay where he was responding to some people who criticized the Anglican prayer book. Why is Y'all have these, all these penitential prayers and it's miserable offender that and have mercy on me this. And it all sounds like so much morbid introspection. And he said, no, it's actually a good thing. And one of the reasons it's good to confess your sins is because, he said, because those who do not think about their own sins make up for it by thinking incessantly of the sins of others. Those who do not think about their own sins Make up for it by thinking incessantly of the sins of others. It's a very common thing today. You know, you just go on Twitter. It's like 50% of Twitter is thinking incessantly of the sins of others. And we, we do this all the time. We're constantly very attentive to the specks in one another's eyes and quick to call them out. And to prevent that, we need to confess our sins. There's a great Bible story that illustrates why we do this. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 12. It's immediately after King David has that whole ordeal with Bathsheba and Uriah. You remember where he breaks like almost all the Ten Commandments in a single go? It's very impressive. He, uh, he covets and he steals um, and he commits adultery and then he bears false witness and he uses trickery and deceit and then finally he murders to cover it all up. Um, so he's really just hitting everyone. And after that, right after that, it's clear that he hasn't confessed his sin. In fact, he may not even have acknowledged it to himself. Maybe it's the kind of thing he just, he just doesn't want to think about what he's done. He's pushing it down. And the Lord sends this prophet Nathan to him. And Nathan tells him this heart-wrenching story about a mean, rich man who has lots of sheep and has... And he wants to throw a banquet, but doesn't want to use one of his own sheep. So he takes this poor man's beloved little lamb, and he slaughters that instead. And, and Nathan tells David this story about what has happened. And how does David respond? He is incensed. He's outraged. He is indignant. He says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Now, keep in mind, King David is the person who is responsible for meeting out the justice of God. He's the one who's supposed to hand out just reward and punishment. And he's calling for this man's death. And, you know, yeah, that was a heart-wrenching story, but death is not a proportionate punishment to stealing a lamb. There are specific punishments mentioned in the Torah, and David should know them, but he goes right to execution. This is not a capital offense. Why, why does David act like that? Why does he have such a disproportionate response? The Bible doesn't say, but I have my own theory, which is, I think that in that moment, David, again, he has not acknowledged and confessed his sin. And we don't know how he feels. We know how he feels elsewhere, that he's being miserable, it's eating away at him. But in that moment, when he can find someone else and he can find the sins of another, and he can feel righteous anger about it, in that moment, he feels clean. He feels like he is on the side of the righteous. And that's what we do. 
We don't deal with our sin. We don't confess it. We don't receive forgiveness. Instead, we bottle it up or we push it down. And it doesn't help us be kinder to other people. It actually, as we incessantly think about the sins of others, makes us more and more merciless and unkind in the way that we deal with the people around us. The first rule of kindness is not to be kind to yourself. That is untrue. The first rule and the step, the first step of kindness is to learn and to acknowledge that you are someone who needs to be shown kindness. To ask God for forgiveness, for mercy, to ask God to be kind to you because you need it. And when you do that on a regular basis and acknowledge that you need another's kindness, the Lord uses that and he makes you more merciful and more kind to the people around you. So that's another reason we confess our sins, so that we can be kind. The final reason we confess our sins is to train us how to love. Y'all remember that uh, song from the Beatles, All You Need Is Love, da-da-da-da-da. It goes on forever, by the way. I looked up, I actually looked up the lyrics. I knew there's some other lyrics in there. But All You Need Is Love is repeated maybe 50 times in that song. And it was, during, it was 1967. It was like their hippie phase. So you're like, okay, we kind of forgive you. You did some other really good stuff. Um, but that song, the, the spirit of that song is to suggest that, you know, what the world needs is it just needs love. If people would just love, then that would fix everything. But again, that's not true. Because it's, it's not true that you don't already love. All of you in this room love. You all love something. You all want something. You have desires. You have things that you delight in. You have things that you want, things that you love. Our problem is not that we don't love. Our problem is that we often love the wrong things. Love is what drives a lot of our actions. The philosopher James K. Smith says, our wants and longings and desires, they are at the core of our identity the wellspring from which our actions and behaviors flow. They drive what we do. Or as he puts it elsewhere, you are what you love. The question is not, do you love? It's what do you love? And the way that we train those loves, one way is through confessing our sin. My great example for this is um, is St. Augustine, right? I don't know of any other example in Christian history where someone has more publicly confessed their sin than him. He actually wrote a book called Confessions about the year 400. And he'd only been a convert for about 12 years um, and a bishop for a short amount of time. And it's like he's publishing a tell-all to everyone about all the sins of his youth. And, And near the end of it, in book 10, he finally raises the question, why am I doing this? Because no one else before him had really done such a thing. It's weird. Why am I not only going through this process of remembering my life and confessing my sins to God, which is what he does, why am I publishing it for other people to see? And the reason, he says in book 10, the reason is because it's the act of confession itself that's training his heart. You might remember he begins his confessions by saying, we're created for God and our hearts are restless. They're unquiet until they find rest in God. And all of his life, he's been loving things, but loving the wrong things. He's never found rest. And so he confesses because he says, when you confess, two things happen. On the one hand, as you feel some kind of remorse 
and regret and sorrow, you realize that the things that you loved, that you chose, that, that seemed sweet at the time, they actually turned out to be bitter. And you realize that those are the wrong things to love. So you need to have times of remorse because otherwise you'll keep loving the wrong thing. And he says, and when I publicize this, my grief over these past actions for others to read, they too can feel that remorse. They can turn away from these things that are wrong to love. But also, he says, in the moment I remember my wrongs and say them out loud, in that same moment, I am reminded of the kindness and the love and the mercy of God to me. He's like, he's like that man in the parable Jesus tells in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son who has gone out into the far country and he's like that moment where he's eating in the pig trough and it says he comes to himself. And confession is like that. You come to yourself and you realize this is pig food. It's terrible. And then at that same moment, it's like he's also experiencing the warmth of his father's embrace. And he's realizing what it is that he really, really wants. He wants to be in the arms of his father. That's what brings him joy. It is the kindness and the mercy and the love of God. And so it trains his heart to love. It turns it away from things that aren't really sweet but are bitter. And it turns it toward the one thing, the one thing that he really, really wants. 1 John 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says, If we can say that we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You're a liar if you say you don't have sin to confess. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. He is true to his word. He will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The psalmist knew that. Augustine knew that. That is why we confess our sins. Remember that this week as we come for Ash Wednesday Begin this season of self-examination, confession and repentance, this season of Lent. Remember that if someone asks you why you have ashes on your head and, and why you do this weird thing where you're regularly talking about the bad things you've done. Remember why it is that we confess our sins. It's not just some religious duty. We do it because this is what makes us happy. This is what keeps us from misery. We do it because this is what makes us kind and merciful and loving to the people around us. And we do it because we need our hearts to be trained to love. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.